today on Legalese, we are talking about the myth of federal supremacy. Hey, greetings, everybody, and welcome back once again to Legalese. As always, I am your host, Bob, and I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me uh, especially welcome you. Uh, This is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, uh, just real quick, if you want to find out more about me and about the show, uh, you can go check out our homepage over at LegalEasePodcast.com. There you can uh, get in contact with me, uh, get updates. Uh, you can watch past episodes of the show. You can buy my book. You can do all kinds of cool shit over there. And if you want to always keep up to date with the content I put out, because I put stuff out across several different sites. I do uh, articles over on Substack. I do videos on YouTube. I do podcast episodes on Spotify. So if you want to keep up to date with all of that, you should head over to uh, LegallyShow.com. There you can sign up for my newsletter, and that way you will get uh, notifications anytime I put out any new content anywhere. So check that out. Well, we've got a lot to get to today, so let's just get right into it, I suppose. Now... We talked about a lot of constitutional myths and misconceptions here on this show, and one of the most common of all constitutional myths and misconceptions that I come across has to do with the notions that our natural rights and individual liberties would be best protected by turning to the federal government, to the Supreme Court, or to Congress to use the Bill of Rights and to use the federal constitution to uh, basically police the states and ensure that the states don't violate our rights. Now, these are incredibly common opinions to come across, and I imagine many people wouldn't think twice before uh, concurring with this assertion. Uh, This is largely because this has really been the prevailing attitude in America since the beginning of the progressive era. But part of what makes this so interesting to me is that while this clearly emerges out of the progressive movement of the early 20th century. It is not a belief at all limited to progressives. We find this idea appearing all over the political spectrum from progressives to mainstream Democrats to Republicans, constitutional conservatives, even libertarians will endorse this notion in at least some instances. So I think a great example of this would have to be Uh, A case we covered uh, on the show before, the Brunson case, Uh, this uh, colloquially is kind of known as Docket 22380, but it was the Brunson v. Adams case. And this is the one where uh, Trump supporters were upset that Congress did not investigate the allegations of election fraud that were made in the 2020 presidential election. They believe Congress just accepting the results without investigation was somehow unconstitutional and that it was a violation of their oaths of office. Now, beyond the fact that they were demonstrating the all-too-common belief that the definitions of the term constitutional and unconstitutional 
are simply everything I personally want the government to do and everything I personally do not want the government to do, respectively. One of the biggest problems with the case had to do with its supporters drawing the conclusion that simply because this was such an important issue, obviously, the people who can and should fix it are the United States Congress. Now, when Congress's actions didn't meet their expectations, they went to the Supreme Court because they concluded the only people important enough to put Congress in their place must be the high court. Now, they did this despite of the mountains of evidence people such as myself offered that the validation of election results are powers the Constitution gives solely and unambiguously to the governments of these several states. And yet many people would hold tightly to their belief that when Congress elected not to exercise a power they were never delegated, this constituted a violation of the Constitution. Now, this is not unlike an argument I often run into as well with libertarians who will hold tight to the belief that because our individual rights and liberties are so exceedingly important that the Supreme Court should be using the Federal Constitution and Bill of Rights to protect us from violations of those rights by state governments. Now, this impulse is one that I do understand because we obviously don't want the government violating our rights. But in reality, we have to recognize that all governments at every level are going to violate our rights. That is simply the nature of government. They are organically antithetical to individual liberty. So while I am understanding of and sympathetic towards this impulse, the issue is that this impulse is misplaced because it places far too much authority in a central power. It centralizes and monopolizes power at the federal level in a way it was simply never intended to be. So it is with all this in mind that I want to approach uh, the main topic of this video today. Uh, now, I recently uh, received uh, an email from a friend of the show who was offering me some feedback uh, on another episode. And at one point, they would give what I thought was a very interesting defense of this general topic, uh, which I guess we could summarize as uh, protecting our rights through centralization. And I just want to say that I greatly uh, appreciate her agreeing to let me share that portion of the email with you all so I can discuss and critique it and we can talk about this inclination towards protecting rights and liberties through the centralization of power. So she began uh, by saying this, that we should address people's rights by state. There are many slight differences from one state to another. People are always getting themselves into legal binds because of officer encounters. To prevent this type of issue is the reason Congress was given any power to create civil and criminal federal laws at all was to avoid this kind of confusion. Basically, that power only occurs when the separate states can land on the same law. When that occurs, Congress or the Supreme Court decides in accordance with the Constitution that the states have to enforce the federal law and repeal the state-level crime. 
in today's society, the levels of government have stacked the deck against the rights of citizens. Many people don't know where to even start, and the courts failing to hold all levels to the same restrictions and not allowing arbitrary rulings. Text in history should have always been the law, and the founders knew how to and how not to embed doubt and confusion. So I want to take each of these issues one by one and ask, are the starting assumptions correct? So what we're going to be talking about today is, one, has the inclination to leave the vast majority of civil and criminal laws to the legislatures of the several states been a mistake? Second, does the Constitution give Congress a general power to make our civil and criminal laws? Three, did the founders believe the role of the federal government was to create a single uniform code of internal laws? Fourth, are the states duty-bound to enforce all federal laws, and can the federal government force the states to repeal their own laws? And additionally, uh, a point that was not brought up directly in that email, but which is very closely related and I want to address, we'll be looking at the Supremacy Clause uh, to answer the question, is it true that federal law is the supreme law of the land? So to start, I think it's worth making an explicit point that the nature of our federal government is a government of expressly delegated powers. They have only those powers explicitly enumerated in the Constitution. While the states reserve all powers except the select few expressly delegated to the federal government, and the framers and ratifiers who gave this document legal force, said this a thousand different ways. Uh, for example, in Federalist 45, James Madison would state that the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be exercised principally on external objects such as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce with which last the powers of taxation will, for the most part, be connected. The powers reserved to these several states will extend to all the objects in which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people, and internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. The legislatures of the states have whatever authority granted to them by their state constitutions to enact criminal codes applicable to those within the borders of their states. So here, Madison is affirming a foundational premise that there is nothing that suggests the federal government has a general power to create an internal system of criminal laws and that, to the contrary, uh, this power is one that these several states unambiguously retain. Now, anti-federalists such as George Mason would point to the Necessary and Proper Clause and argue that it leaves the door wide open for the federal government to decide federal criminal laws could be created under a pretext of being necessary and or proper.
So he said, the clause would allow Congress to constitute new crimes and extend its power as far as it shall think proper so that the state legislatures have no security for the powers now presumed to remain to them or the people for their rights. However, in Federalist 14, James Madison would clarify that in the first place, it is to be remembered that the general government is not to be charged with the whole power of making and administering laws. Its jurisdiction is limited to certain enumerated objects which concern all the members of the republic, but which are not to be attained by the separate provisions of any. The subordinate governments which can extend their care to all those other objects which can be separately provided for will retain their due authority and activity. Now, even the most ardent and unapologetic of national figures, or nationalist figures, I should say, who had a direct hand uh, in drafting the Constitution, and right now I'm thinking of men such as James Wilson especially, would say the very same thing, uh, including in his famous State House speech of October 6, 1787. Now, I have done entire videos and articles, plural, on his State House speech. What's the problem? I haven't got a problem. I've got fucking problems. Plural. One away, But the central premise of the speech can be summed up like this. When the people established the powers of legislation under their separate governments, they invested their representatives with every right and authority that they, not, they did not, in explicit terms, reserve. And therefore, upon every question respecting the jurisdiction of the House of Assembly, if the frame of government is silent, the jurisdiction is efficient and complete. But in delegating federal powers, another criterion was necessarily introduced, and the congressional authority is to be collected, not from tacit implication, but from the positive grant expressed in the instrument of union. Hence, it is evident that in the former case, everything which is not reserved is given, but in the latter, the reverse of the proposition prevails, and everything which is not given is reserved. So what Wilson is saying here is that the federal government may only do as much as the Constitution allows them to do, and it is up to the states to do everything else. So, if our federal government is a government of expressly delegated powers, the next obvious question here would be, what are those powers? What do they provide the federal government a wide latitude for doing, and does that concern legislation relating to criminal and civil laws. Now, Congress's expressly delegated powers over which they have the authority to legislate uh, lie almost entirely within Article 1, Section 8. This part of the Constitution identifies 17 enumerated powers. And you can see I have them listed here, and that includes the powers to lay and collect taxes, borrow money, regulate commerce, create uniform laws of bankruptcy, coin money, punishment of counterfeiting, establishing post offices, 
promote the progress of science, constitute tribunals, punish piracy, declare war, raise and support armies, maintain a navy, calling forth the militia, disciplining the militia, they have exclusive legislation over federal territory, and then finally, as we've already talked about, they have the power to make any laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. So, looking at this list, the Constitution did not delegate to Congress any general powers to make criminal laws. Now, it does grant a few very limited powers to make criminal laws. Uh, congressional authorization to make criminal laws here really fall into a handful of categories. There are those made pursuant to an express authorization of four specific crimes that were named in that section. There are those made under the necessary and proper clause. There are those that are made uh, for the few tiny geographical areas over which Congress has exclusive legislation. Four, laws governing the military. And five, laws made pursuant to constitutional amendments. So let's talk about the expressly authorized and specified crimes of Article 1, Section 8. So Article 1, Section 8 grants to Congress authority to define and punish counterfeiting, to punish uh, piracies and felonies committed upon the high seas, as well as laws against or offenses against the laws of nations, and then there is an additional one that we didn't get to because it's not in Article 1, Section 8, but in Article 3, Section 3, it grants to Congress a restricted power to declare the punishment of treason. Now, the meaning of the phrase law of nations in this clause is sometimes mistaken as referring to Vattel's law of nations. However, uh, when we look at the records of the Continental Congress and the later state ratification debates, they demonstrate that the meaning of this term to the framers and ratifiers who gave the Constitution legal force was simply international law. And Webster's Dictionary, the 1828 edition, would define law of nations as the rules that regulate the mutual intercourse of nations or states. These rules depend on natural law or the principle of justice which spring from a social state or they are founded on customs, compacts, treaties, leagues, and agreements between independent communities. Now, to give one example of a law of nations based on uh, something like a custom, from antiquity to modern times, envoys between warring armies have always been entitled to safe conduct while on their missions. This is the source of the phrase, don't kill the messenger. And this explains the uh, very... A dramatic scene from the film 300 where uh, King Leonidas uh, makes threats against a Persian messenger and his threats are decried as madness. Madman. For a madman. Earth and water. Well, you'll find plenty of both down there. No man. Persian or Greek, no man threatens a messenger. 
you bring the crowns and heads of conquered kings to my city steps. You insult my queen. You threaten my people with slavery and death. Oh, I've chosen my words carefully, Persian. Perhaps you should have done the same. This is blasphemy. This is madness. From this we can conclude, our concept of diplomatic immunity is thus an ancient one. Now, moving on to an overview of those laws made under the Necessary and Proper Clause. So, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18 grants to Congress the power to, quote, make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution all powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States, end quote. This necessary and proper clause allows Congress to make criminal laws when necessary to enforce powers vested by the Constitution in the federal government. Now, this clause worried people for a number of very real and important reasons that uh, I actually wrote an entire book about called Constitutional Sleight of Hand, which I would highly recommend everybody go check out. You can get it on Amazon or on my website. But for our discussion today, I think it will suffice to uh, briefly look to uh, Madison's defense of the necessary and proper clause in Federalist 44, where Madison says regarding uh, people's fears of usurpations by Congress, What is to be the consequence in case the Congress shall misconstrue this part of the Constitution and exercise powers not warranted by its true meaning? I answer the same as if they should misconstrue or enlarge any other power vested in them. The success of the usurpation will depend on the executive and judiciary departments, which are to expound and give effect to the legislative acts, and in the last remedy, must be obtained from the people who can, by the election of more faithful representatives, annul the acts of the usurpers. And this is not a grant of any new powers to Congress. Now, when we apply this claim to those foregoing powers that we saw listed in Article 1, Section 8, we can identify uh, several incidental federal lawmaking powers. So Congress has the authority under the Necessary and Proper Clause to certainly make criminal laws enforcing the taxes, duties, imposed, and excises authorized by Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1. They have the power to make criminal laws prohibiting the filing of false statements or claims in bankruptcy court pursuant to their power to create a uniform set of bankruptcy laws and to make criminal laws forbidding the importation of slaves after 1808, which is actually in conjunction with uh, a clause in Article 1, 
Section 9, Clause 1. Additionally, in Article 2, uh, Section 4, it mentions impeachment of civil officers for, among other things, bribery. So, it would then be necessary and proper for Congress to pass a criminal statute prohibiting the acceptance of bribes by civil officers of the United States. And, because the main duty of the federal judiciary created by Article 3 is, or because one of the main duties, I should say, uh, created by Article 3 is to conduct trials uh, in the limited category of cases which they are permitted to hear at least, that this means they must have parties and witnesses to the case. Parties and witnesses must be required to tell the truth, so it would be necessary and proper for Congress to make laws declaring perjury and lying under oath in a federal court a criminal offense. Now, these examples are not exclusive. There are doubtless additional criminal laws that would be appropriate exercises of the necessary and proper clause. But it's important to note that private, private citizens would rarely, if ever, find themselves in a situation where these criminal laws would actually apply to them. Next, laws made in pursuance to the geographical jurisdiction that Congress has granted. Now, if we go back to Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, this authorized Congress to uh, exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over the small, teeny tiny, little defined geographical area that is the seat of government of the United States, and this would also include things such as forts, dockyards, magazine arsenals, and the like. Now, in Federalist 43, James Madison explained that the need for a federal district subject to Congress's exclusive jurisdiction and separate from the territory and authority of any single state. He said the indispensable necessity of complete authority at the seat of government carries its own evidence with it. It is a power exercised by every legislature of the Union. I might say of the world by virtue of its general supremacy without it, not only the public authority might be insulted and its proceedings interrupted with impunity, but a dependence of the members of the general government on the state comprehending the seat of government for protection in exercise of their duty might bring on the national councils an imputation of awe or influence equally dishonorable to the government and dissatisfactory to the other members of the Confederacy. Now, it's worth noting that private citizens would not be affected by these laws unless they happen to find themselves inside the District of Columbia or a military base, dockyard, or other such federal territory. And speaking of military bases and dockyards, the next category, Rules Governing the Military. Now, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 14 authorizes Congress to 
make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. Under this grant of authority, Congress has properly enacted the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and this is the criminal code which governs members of our military forces. And this covers all the standard criminal offenses plus additional crimes uniquely appropriate to those in the military and failure to obey a lawful order, dereliction of duty, being absent without leave, desertion, uh, conduct unbecoming of an officer, and other such uh, crimes or military crimes. Now, again, it is important to note that civilians would not be affected by a criminal code governing the military forces. And that last category of criminal laws we are going to be talking about, those pursuant to constitutional amendments. Now, some of the amendments of the Constitution do authorize Congress to enact laws to enforce them. So the 13th Amendment would authorize Congress to make laws criminally punishing those who kept slaves. The 18th Amendment, which was, is now repealed, uh, had authorized Congress and the states to make laws criminally punishing those who manufactured or trafficked in intoxicating liquors. Now, the 14th and 15th Amendments uh, share in having the same clause that we found in the 13th Amendment that authorizes Congress to make appropriate legislation. But these amendments restrict only the several states and not the citizens thereof. So Congress has criminal jurisdiction over private citizens under all amendments is limited only to people who keep slaves. So with those five categories out of the way, let's talk about the Supremacy Clause. Now, one point that will inevitably be raised to disprove, or, or I guess more properly to attempt to disprove, the argument that I am making here is that I am forgetting or overlooking the Supremacy Clause. People will insist the Supremacy Clause means the federal government is absolutely supreme in all it does. And every one of those people is wrong. A similar claim I often run into is people who will say something to the effect of the Supremacy Clause means federal laws always supersede state laws. Anyone making this claim is at best innocently ignorant about this clause's meaning uh, and scope or willfully lying. What's it like to be a liar, huh? Do you like being a liar with pants constantly on fire? Oh, so both of these fallacious arguments leave out an indispensable part of the clause because what that clause actually says word for word is, this constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made, under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. Now, the most important and least regarded part of this clause is, 
in pursuance thereof. The federal government is only supreme when its actions are in pursuance of the Constitution. And since the Constitution, as we have just seen, delegates very few powers to the general government, it isn't supreme very often. Let's not forget that the people of these several states are actually the supreme and sovereign power in the American system. It is the people and these several states who created the federal government and not the other way around. And it is the people in these several states who delegated to this government its few enumerated powers. So, yes, the federal government certainly enjoys supremacy within its sphere. But once it moves an inch beyond that sphere, it possesses no supremacy at all. Now, this is a point that Alexander Hamilton would drive home in Federalist 33 when he said, It will not follow from this doctrine that acts of the larger society which are not pursuant to its constitutional powers, but which are invasions of the residuary authorities of the smaller societies will become the supreme law of the land. These will be merely acts of usurpation and will deserve to be treated as such. So Hamilton then goes on to explain that far from expanding the powers of the federal government, the Supremacy Clause, properly understood, is a limitation on federal power. And he said, It will not, I presume, have escaped observation that the Supremacy Clause expressly confirms this supremacy to laws made pursuant to the Constitution, which I mention merely as an instance of caution in the Convention since the limitation have been to be understood, though it had not been expressed. And so this brings us back to the question of whether or not Congress has the authority to make states enforce federal law and repeal state laws. Does the Supremacy Clause mean that the federal government can coerce the states to enforce federal laws as long as that federal law is made in pursuance of a constitutionally delegated power? Well, actually, no. Even such a law that, uh, that is based on a constitutionally delegated power still does not impose any duty on these several states. Duty. <laughs> Diarrhea. To find out why this is, we need to talk about James Madison and the National Veto. So, when we look to text, history, and tradition, we can find a number of pieces of evidence that the framers and ratifiers who gave our Constitution legal force did not want the federal government to have that much power over the states. We know this because during the Philadelphia Convention, James Madison advocated for a provision that would have allowed the national legislature to veto the acts of state legislatures. In the Virginia Plan, which was the initial presentation of 
for a new constitution that was drafted by James Madison, uh, presented by uh, Edmund Randolph. Article 6 read, resolved that the national legislature ought to be empowered to enjoy the legislative rights vested in Congress by the Confederation and, moreover, to legislate in all cases to which the separate states are incompetent or which the harmony of the United States may be interrupted by the exercise of individual legislation. And the important part here, to negative all laws passed by the several states contravening, in the opinion of the national legislature, the Articles of Union, or any treaties subsisting under the authority of the Union. Now, ultimately, this provision was roundly rejected by the delegates at the convention, specifically because their biggest fear at the time was the degree of centralization of power that would occur from this would make the federal government too big and too strong to the point where it would overwhelm the individual states. And actually, very much to his credit, James Madison would acquiesce to the validity of these concerns. He himself became sensible of the obstacles to such an arrangement that was uh, presented in the extent of the country, the number of states, and the multiplicity of their laws. Now, further challenges to this notion of federal supremacy in text, history, and tradition come from an understanding of the anti-commandeering doctrine. So the anti-commandeering doctrine prohibits the federal government from commandeering state personnel or resources for federal purposes. In effect, the federal government is constitutionally prohibited from requiring states to use their personnel or resources to enforce federal laws or implement federal programs. State and local governments cannot directly block federal agents from enforcing federal laws or implementing federal programs, but they do not have to cooperate with the feds in any way. Now, just for instance, a local sheriff cannot block an ATF agent from enforcing a federal gun law, but the ATF absolutely cannot force the state sheriff's office to participate in their enforcement effort. Now, the anti-commandeering doctrine is a natural consequence of the 10th Amendment's provision that all powers not expressly delegated to the federal government in the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states and to the people respectively. And this doctrine has been affirmed in five different landmark Supreme Court cases. These are First, Prigg v. Pennsylvania in 1842, New York v. United States in 1992, Prince v. United States in 1997, NFIB v. Sebelius in 2012, and Murphy v. NCAA in 2018. Now, I have made videos already on several of these cases, and so, uh, as always, uh, you will find links to those videos uh, on the show notes page for this episode. Now, on top of this, this, uh, this history of judicial decisions uh, affirming the anti-commandeering doctrine, 
the propriety of this doctrine is one that can be found long before the Supreme Court would first affirm its existence in 1842. Uh, a perfect example of this is James Madison's message in Federalist 46. He said, should an unwarrantable measure of the federal government be unpopular in particular states, which would seldom fail to be the case, or even a, warrant, a warrantable measure be so, which may sometimes be the case, the means of opposition are powerful and at hand. The disquietude of the people, their repugnance and perhaps their refusal to cooperate with officers of the Union, the frowns of the executive magistracy of the state, the embarrassment created by legislative devices which would often be added on such occasions would oppose, in any state, very serious impediments. And where the sentiments of these several adjoining states happen to be in union would present obstructions which the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. Now, this concept was further elaborated in 1798 when James Madison and Thomas Jefferson would pen the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, respectively, as well as a related document that became known as Madison's Report of 1800. So, perhaps you're asking yourself at this point, okay, so maybe there is no constitutional basis for giving Congress a general power to make criminal laws. But what about a practical basis? Wouldn't it make more sense to have one uniform set of laws? Wouldn't that protect our rights and liberties better by making sure we are all subject to the same laws? What reason is there to continue to utilize a federal structure of criminal law rather than a national one? Now, there is certainly a prima facie logic to this line of reasoning, but the argument overlooks a vital bit of context, namely the original understanding of the checks and balances in our government. Now, what has been unfortunately left out for much of our history, really since almost the end of the Civil War, is the fact that Federalism is itself a crucial check on the powers of the federal government. We're all used to this chart of checks and balances that we all, I'm sure, had or something very similar to it in our textbooks in uh, middle school about how the president checks the legislature with the veto and, and the Congress checks the president with the power of the purse and the court checks them both with judicial review. And we all know all about that. However, checks and balances was much more comprehensive than this to the founders. Uh, they understood that the more diffuse power is, the harder it is for anyone to abuse that power. Plus, if and when someone manages to successfully exploit the power they have been delegated, there is simply less of it to abuse. Now, this is one reason why the Senate alone was given the power to confirm executive officers and judges and why it is they alone who ratify treaties. People easily forget the Senate was meant to be an instrument of the states, and this change 
uh, just like all of the other changes that brought this about, goes right back to the progressive era. Because it was only in 1913 that the change was made uh, to this with the passage of the 17th Amendment. So, in brief, the reason senators were originally appointed by the state legislatures was, again, part of this diffusion of power. Some of the federal legislative power was given to the people of the several states through the House of Representatives, and some of that power was given to the states themselves through the appointment of senators. Now, furthermore, there was a reason that pretty much every prominent figure from among the framers and ratifiers all identified one of the greatest threats to individual liberty as a consolidation of power. For example, Patrick Henry put it this way in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He said, dangers are to be apprehended in whatever manner we proceed, but those of a consolidation are the most destructive. And he would later warn in the convention that a consolidation must end in the destruction of our liberties. This is a view that Thomas Jefferson would echo in a letter that he wrote to Joseph C. Cabell when he said, What has destroyed liberty and the rights of man in every government which it has ever existed under the sun? The generalizing and concentrating powers into, of all powers into one body. And even James Wilson, who was arguably the most staunch nationalist uh, supporter from among the Constitution's framers and ratifiers, would also concede this point when he said, To support with vigor a single government over the whole extent of the United States would demand a system of the most unqualified and the most unremitted despotism. So, in short, while the debates over ratification were often over consolidation, almost no one rejected the notion that a massive centralization of power was a bad thing. The argument were really mostly over whether the proposed constitution would lead to such a consolidation and such an outcome. And Folks like George Mason understood that this sort of uh, one-size-fits-all solution to any and every problem under the sun would not only be undesirable, but impossible. As he said, is it to be supposed that one national government will suit so extensive a country, embracing so many climates and containing inhabitants so very different in their manners, habits, and customs? It is ascertained by history that there never was a government over a very extensive country without destroying the liberties of the people. And consider that today we are now in a union of not just 13 states like they had back then, but 50 states with more than 300 million people with a wide range of political, economic, social, and religious viewpoints. And these are problems that are only going to grow. Now, 
James Madison noted that where power is in the few, it is natural for them to sacrifice the many to their own partialities and corruptions. So, when we see corruption all around us in politicians, in agencies, and elsewhere, we shouldn't be surprised it's happening. Because the root cause, of course, is too much power in too few hands. Now, this is the bad news, but there is good news, too. If consolidation ends in the destruction of liberties, then the key to regaining liberty lost is an unconsolidation, or, uh, to use an actual word, a decentralization. Decentralization is an indispensable element of federalism. And I would argue that there is a clear inverse relationship between the diffusion of power and the danger that power poses. Now, for more than a century, the government has been trying to convince the people that the protection of our rights will be secured if we focus our attention on Washington, D.C. to make sure we are sending the right people to make the right choices to get us all headed in the right direction. People always tend to think that when problems arise, it's the federal government squandering or misusing their delegated authority. Few people ever seem to consider the possibility that it is the power itself that is to blame. The contingencies, context, and conditions in which power is misused are transient, and this is why a shuffling of power back and forth between opposing parties will always fail to affect a meaningful change because it's actually the claim of consolidation as being legitimate in the first place that causes the problem. Perhaps the best example of this was the Trump presidency and the unique level of panic that often manifested in people who opposed him. Now, they may not have realized this and still may not realize this, but none of them were scared of Trump the person. Trump has been on this earth for over 70 years, and other than a general distaste for him, no one ever feared for their life because Trump walked the earth. He could do what he wanted because he didn't affect your life. He had no control over you. What you feared was the power the presidency gave to Trump. So the key then is to reject any effort to give the central government more power. Even when you might like how that power is being used by the government at the moment. Because eventually, other politicians will wield that same power and they will use it in ways that you never intended. And we should always remember that the power to do good necessarily comes with the power to do evil. And that furthermore, when it comes to the federal government, the power to protect is the power to control.
Well, that is all I have for you guys here today. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. Uh, if you would do all of those things that help to trigger Al Gore's rhythm, I would, oh, you know, gratefully appreciate it. Uh, make sure you, you, if you like the video, hit that like button. If you disliked it, hit the dislike button. Uh, for sure, leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought about the video. I, I really do love getting to hear from you guys in the comment section uh, and even responding as much as I can. Uh, and then don't forget to uh, check out the show's homepage, illegallyspodcast.com. Don't forget to go sign up for our newsletter if you want to get updates whenever I release content from anywhere, whether it's articles, podcasts, or videos, you can do that at LegallyShow.com. So until next time, this has been Bob for Legalese, talking about the myth of federal supremacy, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est.